Well, welcome back. This is the Multipod. This, I guess, is going to be episode number 101. If you listened into our most recent episode, which was now a few weeks ago, it was our fifth anniversary celebration of this show, the 100th episode, which was the big reunion. And I guess you might say that today's episode is, well, it's definitely something special. Maybe it's the beginning of another phase of the Multipod, because this is the second time we've ever done a live recording of this show. And I got to say, this one is very, very special. So I'm your host today, a solo host, uh, Ted speaking. And I am sitting in the living room of Casa de Sonia. <laughs> she is sitting right next to me. It is amazing to be in your company here in your house so in Portugal. Fun. Yeah, so so much fun. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let me give a bit of the backstory. Uh, some of you may know from the, in the putty verse and on the forum, we've chatted a bit of how my wife Emily and I and our two young kids, we've been traveling since early January in Europe, mostly in Portugal. Largely, our trip has been kind of staying in one place as much as we can. We stayed for four weeks in Lisbon. We had a, a week in Algarve in the south of uh, Portugal. We had a week in Porto. And uh, now we're down to our last kind of week and a half, at least as uh, even just a few days really from this recording here. So it's all really built up to the culmination, I would say, of this trip, especially in Portugal, which is coming to see you, which is something we started talking about like a year ago, because I told you, you know, we were hoping, thinking of coming to Portugal. And it took a long time, but uh, we made it happen. But of course, this is the most important part of all of your trip. Like yeah. everything else could have not happened except coming here. <laughs> yeah. We started talking about your trip and I'm always trying to get people to come here so I can hug them. <laughs> so now I actually managed to get that. Yay! Yeah, that was quite so a cool. moment. We uh, Today is uh, Saturday and we showed up on Wednesday, so like three days ago. Uh, we rented a car from Porto and first we went up to, uh, we had a bit of time because we left there in the morning and we were going to get here till late in the day. We went to a neat town called Guima, help me with the pronunciation, is mm -hmm. it Guimarães? Guimarães, yeah. Guimarães? Yeah, because okay. because it has the, the little wave that makes you like need yeah, to pinch the nose. It's more nasally. Yeah. Uh, Guimarães. Yeah. Okay, good. See, we read these things, but we never know exactly how it's pronounced. Neither do Portuguese people, no worries. Like there's <laughs> there's a lot of towns that have their name written in old in old plaques, like okay. like the ancient writing, and people still pronounce it pronounce it like that. But then the new plaques have different writing and people still pronounce it the same way, so all good. Okay, yeah, <laughs> interesting. So yeah, we went, we we made a quick stop there, kind of for lunch, and then we came down your way, which was a good two, two and a half hour drive, I guess. Beautiful drive. We're uh, uh, in a, a mountain range. You could say the eastern half of Portugal is quite hilly and even mountainous, and yep. that brought us to your place, which is a beautiful farm just uh, outside of a couple towns. And it was quite the moment when we rolled in down this gravel road and... Uh, <laughs> All dark. Yeah, it was dark by that point. That's the thing. And then around this uh, like a stone wall and we go up the driveway and there you were. There exactly. You were. <laughs> like I was actually going outside to see, let me see if I can see the lights, if there's, mm. they need directions or whatever. And then, oh, wait, you're here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It yeah. was fun. Yeah. So yeah, it's been, and, and I do say it's a combination, not just because it's great to see you at last, but for us, maybe one of the struggles with this trip is getting to really chat with locals because we've often, we've been so busy. I mean, sightseeing, homeschooling, I've been working a fair bit, you know, with my podcast production. So yeah. that's kept me busy and it's hard to really integrate with a lot of locals. We chat with people a bit in uh, you know, in a restaurant or cafe owners and things like that. That's something. But to be in someone's house is a whole different story. And you are really the only people that we know in Portugal that, you know, we would go into your house and like see day-to-day -day life kind of thing in Portugal. So that's been exciting too. <laughs> I hope we're not scaring you too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, it's been fun. It's been really fun to be here. So as much uh, what I'd like to chat about today is just some perspectives on Portugal. Yeah. Um, it's a place, we've kind of witnessed this firsthand, uh, how popular it is. And we've been here kind of in low season. I mean, ostensibly yeah. winter, which is much warmer than our winter back home in, in Quebec and Canada. But still, I mean, it's ostensibly low season, so it's not nearly as busy, right, nope. as it'll be soon. But still, we witnessed, the, for sure, the popularity in terms of tourism in Portugal. It's a place that lots of people are talking about. You know, I may have told you, too, like in the run-up to this trip over the previous months, 
how we just kept hearing from person after person and so-and-so knew somebody else who had just been to Portugal yeah. or oh, I'm going next month or yeah. I really want to go there, you know? It's yeah. really on people's minds. Yeah, and a lot of people are actually thinking of like moving to Portugal, mm -hmm. which I find very interesting. Yeah. Because like it, it is not only tourist-wise, it has become very interest because, interesting because we do have a very big selection of monuments, mm -hmm. of museums, castles. There's a lot you, of palaces. Yeah, there's a lot of palaces, <laughs> yes. We, we, like we were grandiose at one point. And also because people are mostly welcoming in Portugal, yeah. especially in the north. <clears throat> it's because I'm a northerner, I know, but it's true. <laughs> like especially in the north, people, when they see you more than like a couple of times, hmm. okay, this person is staying here. It's not only a tourist. Yeah, yeah. So they will start like, talking to you and picking up on something or oh yeah, yes you're here and like we are all very not very nosy uh -huh. portuguese people are very very nosy they will know everything about you <laughs> as quick as they can so they are not like shy at questioning you about everything mm -hmm. <laughs> interesting so so like it is very interesting to see that although right now some places are getting like too many tourists and people are becoming mm. like oh no another tourist But still, we are very welcoming and like, even if we don't know the language, we'll make it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's been interesting too, because I mean, we have been in pretty touristy places. So you generally see or hear English and we can get by. Yep. But uh, the place we stayed in Lisbon was more in the suburbs. If you're familiar with Lisbon, there's a town called Sintra, which is in the hills, kind of um, north, northwest. Palace. Yeah, northwest of the city center roughly 40 minutes by train. And we stayed in a suburb called Rinchoa, which was on the train line. From there, it was about 30 minutes right into central Lisbon. So yep. it was really well placed. We could be in Sintra in like 10 minutes. And yeah, there's all these beautiful palaces there. Uh, you can walk around the hills and so on. So it was a nice location. But where we were was very not touristy at all. It was very suburban and just everyday people going about their lives. And we did not hear much English there at all, which is great because we could practice at least a bit our Portuguese. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and people will make you practice if yeah. you try. Because if you tell them, oh, I need to learn, they will do their best to help hmm. you. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I was wondering as much as anything what the attitudes towards tourism is like these days. Are people welcoming of it? Do they feel the country starting to get overrun? It's getting overrun At least I can talk from the Porto perspective, mm. because being born and raised in Porto, when it wasn't as touristy as it is now, and seeing it now, that's a huge difference. Yeah. Especially like places where when I was studying in university, I could go and grab a cafe like Livraria Lelo, mm -hmm. which got really famous because J.K. Rowling said she was inspired in it <laughs> for Hogwarts and whatever. And I'm like, oh my God, this is going to happen. And it did. Now you cannot get in there. Just like we tried to go and sh show it to our kids and we couldn't because the line was so big. Yeah. And it's it's strange to see that like instead of hearing Portuguese, most of the languages you hear are other languages. Mm. And it's it's a different sense. But like Portuguese people will seize an opportunity to make a business or whatever. So like people are still like opening up a lot of souvenir shops. There's a lot of tour guides and whatever so th these things pop up and we are we are we are very resilient people we will be pessimist by nature but some of us are fighting it <laughs> actively <laughs> yeah. yeah like if you ask someone how are you going they will say oh we're going like oh is everything okay oh we're going it's going okay like it could be worse and like there's never like rejoicing or positive or whatever mm -hmm. but we always try to make the most out of life so we are now trying to make the most out of having a lot of tourists everywhere like, yeah yeah right yeah yeah that's i mean there's pros and cons to it for sure it obviously helps the economy and yeah uh, you see the investment i was thinking i could i could get a sense in portugal when we were there because i felt it was very much in transition in terms of tourism you see some attractions museums and there's like interactive museums and things which are clearly new probably like in the last five or yeah years especially or in gaia the south of yeah, the river yeah yeah But at the same time, you're standing um, from the bridge, the famous bridge that goes across the river, or the cathedral, the say, and the it's say, on top of the yep. hill, and you're looking down on the houses, and not there's a few, not most of them are in decent shape, but there's some 
they're missing roofs, like there's broken windows and they're abandoned and stuff. And all I could think was, well, they're going to clean it up before long because the gentrification is exactly. coming, you know, yeah. with all the tourism investment and stuff like yeah. that. So, I mean, yeah, it'd be nice to clean it up, but you don't want it to lose its character and its soul either. It will be hard to make it lose its character because mm. most of it is done out of granite, which is like oh, yeah. the basically the one of the hardest rocks and because it was really common like almost all the old houses are made of granite they ha do have those beautiful tiles in the front so mm -hmm. they can stop a little bit the, the moisture from the, the ocean but they are made of granite so it's really hard to try to like knock down one of those houses <laughs> so trying to adjust and turn them into hostels there's a whole bunch of hostels shows always popping up there's a lot of also investment in trying to keep people in the town especially the downtown part where mostly of the tourism happens because tourists also want to have people there and people also want to live there because of the centrality and everything yeah so the now they're trying to find the balance they're investing in tourism at the same time that they're investing in the locals so they actually stay there and it is a totally different vibe it's it becomes safer then because there's yeah, yeah. inhabitants That's there good, yeah. so yeah they are at least in Porto, thinking how, on how to combine everything. So that's a good thing. Mm. Yeah, I think my very first impression of Lisbon, because we went to Lisbon first, uh, my very first impression is that this entire city is covered in marble and granite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Especially I mean, marble down there. Yeah, yeah, especially down there. Yeah. So let, there's less marble up north. There's still marble, but more granite. More granite. Interesting, because yeah. yeah, it was everywhere. It's like, and that's a, like a precious stone, you know, back in Canada, North America. Like, yeah, but here we actually walk on the, on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like we had, we were staying at this place again in Minshaw for four weeks, just at an apartment, and like the whole entranceway was covered in marble. the f The first two floors, the stairs were marble. In the apartment, the countertops were marble. <laughs> yeah. By that point, we we're getting used to it, but it's like, wow. I mean, clearly, it's not like super expensive because it's everywhere. No, no. I mean, it can be expensive if you get like the Italy ones or whatever. So you can always have that. If you're a millionaire, you can always have sure. expensive marble. Yes, <laughs> still possible. But it is more common here because, like, right now the farm we're in, it used to be an old granite quarry. Mm. So there's like quarries all over, ancient, recovered, still active. So like. We do have a lot of the mineral around and a lot of the stone around. So it, and we have worked it for ages. So it is very interesting to see like how we use it in everything, even when it's not practical. Like yeah. in Coimbra, steep roads with marble flooring. Uh -huh, no, <laughs> not <laughs> on the roads, not, not just the sidewalks. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the roads already have asphalt, so it's safer. Like you can go into the roads to go down when it's raining. Otherwise, yeah. Wow. can get tricky. Because then that was probably my second impression of Lisbon, was the sidewalks, the calçada, which mm -hmm. is like uh, little pieces of... Now, what are those made of? Are those granite? The, the white ones are marble. The black ones are basalt, I think. Okay. Some places they can be granite. Depends on limestone what's available. Too? Those are the white ones. Yeah. Okay. They so, can be marble or limestone, yeah. So this is how... In Portugal, how you make most of your sidewalks, at first I was thinking, well, it's just kind of a touristy thing in the central part of Lisbon. But then we figured they're everywhere. They're in this little neighborhood where we were staying. And they're these little squarish, rectangular blocks yeah. that are, you know, maybe, what, five by five centimeters kind of thing. Yeah. Like, they're usually small pieces. And they're inlaid. They must be inlaid with some kind of sand mixture yeah, to hold you, them in place. Yeah, you get the sand underneath to level it all out. Okay. And then they they use, like, the, the strings to create the patterns. Hmm. They can create awesome designs with that yeah they actually like break the stones in ways that then they puzzle them together you have like the big squares in lisbon mm -hmm. and also in porto they ha actually have like big designs yeah and the idea is to always have beautiful pathways and show how beautiful it is and it is a very good tradition but again, sometimes not very practical. <laughs> yeah. Yes, because also the the first couple of days we were in Lisbon, it was raining off and on. And it's really slippery. Yeah, it was very slippery these days. Yeah. <laughs> and some of the places it's so worn out that you actually yeah. have like, it's really smooth. So you actually get to skate even when it's dry. <laughs> like, whoosh, you slide. Yeah. And yeah. you see others where the trees are next to it and the tree roots have pushed up the sidewalks, yeah. right? These tiles. So my impression was that th this whole city and then by extension, this whole country is a work of art. Totally. You know, like totally. uh, it, it's all a playground, a, 
a, a tableau for artwork, essentially, whether it's the sidewalk or the murals everywhere, yeah, all kinds of statues and public art. We just did a little drive today just around the countryside here this afternoon, and you go around the roundabouts, and there's often little statues and sculptures. Yeah, if there's no statues, there will be flowers, there will be a fountain, mm. something always is there. So are people conscious of this, that like maybe public space is to be decorated, to be yeah. embellished? Yeah. Like that? I mean, including like, for instance, if you find graffiti somewhere, sometimes yeah. the graffiti is spontaneous. Other times it's actually like the municipality actually asks for it. So really? it embellishes stuff. So for instance, like here, the, this is a like the down region where they make down wine. Yeah. So there's like a lot of kubas, those things where you ferment the wine. Yeah. I don't know what's the English, the word for well, that. Well, I don't know either. And we saw them yesterday in town. They're like, how do you describe it? They're, Big domes? They look like wells, like water wells. Yeah, but then they domes. have the dome. Yeah. yeah. And they're mostly in the earth, I think. Are yeah, because, ground, because the idea is to let the wine ferment. So the, the okay. air comes up on top, right. but it's still protected and to gain all the alcohol and right, everything. Right. And those ones near to, near to the city hall, they were the oldest. And they were like eh, a bit yucky. So because they always have every year a festival for for the wine here, mm -hmm. they painted it. They actually got an artist to do uh, graffiti in it, and it has Baco, the um, the Greek god of uh, no oh, Roman yeah. god of um, wine. wine drinking. And there's other embellishments. And because uh, uh, Nellas also has the Estatua dos Canção, the, the what you call the dude that knows everything about wine and serves the wine, like can advise you the best. Uh, a sommelier, I guess. It's French yeah, word, but yeah, maybe, yeah. So a sommelier statue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and because like the statue is in one of the main roads, because there's only two, they actually then did the big graffiti on the um, on another of the city monuments of this Sound too. So like they're doing in Lisbon and also in Porto, Purdalo the second. He's a really well-known artist. He mixes graffiti with recycling of objects to create really beautiful works of art. Hmm. And he's trying to show people that like, you need to enjoy what you have. Don't throw it away because it can still yeah. be art. Recycle, reuse, whatever. So like, usually they have like two sides to each one of his installations, like the beautiful side of reusing hmm. and the other side. like He did actually the last one I saw. It was like Gremlin. Like the the nice gremlin before oh, yeah. the water, <laughs> and the, no, before the water, no, before the midnight something, yeah, yeah. and then the other gremlin on the other side, and it's a way to get people to interact with their environment and the places they live, so people are not like stuck in the rut and just going one place to the other without noticing what's around them because it is beautiful for tourists, so it should be beautiful sure. for us. Yeah, it is. And sometimes yeah. we forget it. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, we become complacent, I guess, to our yeah. own. Our own backyard. But yeah, driving around today, you know, we had some stunning views, these these wide valleys off in the distance yeah. in the mountains there. I'll put a link in our notes here to, you can see on Google Maps and Google Earth, like these wine, again, canister kind of things Yeah. Uh, in Nelash, which is the closest town to where we are. So you can see these from above and kind of get a sense. They look like wells, but they're actually for storing wine back in the yeah. day. But I want to go back to probably my third impression then of Lisbon, which was the graffiti. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't understand it because, you know, we get the graffiti all over the world and back home and and often it's incredible murals, like amazing artists. And like, without being too, I guess, judgmental or critical, like, you know, it's clear when someone's painted or drawn an amazing portrait or something that's really provocative and maybe yeah. political, but, it, you know, but a lot of the graffiti is just people spraying paint, just yeah. spraying lines and just messing things up. And yeah. I was like, why do they do this to every public piece of every square inch? It seems in some places in the train stations and yeah. walking down the streets and people just, Oh, they have a spray can in their pocket and I'll just spray something. Basically. Yeah. yeah like this happens everywhere. And usually it's like trying to rebel against the mm. system and whatever. It's like that phase. But a lot of times they actually become later the ones that actually do the big graffiti murals yeah. and whatever. So like they become, everybody needs to have their own signature. Mm. And once they become famous enough, they will be able to do like a mur mural or whatever. Mm. So everybody's trying to get their piece of art in or their little signature so one day they can be known mm. and it's really fun to see like for instance in the subway in lisbon mm -hmm. there used to be a lot of graffiti and a lot of 
we call it pishar, which is basically like just getting things dirty mm. with no reason yeah, whatsoever. Yeah. And then they actually decided to incorporate that when they renewed the metro sub the subway okay. stations. Mm. And they actually asked all the graffitiers to go there and do something. So that became art. Mm. And now they don't paint on, on it. So it was a way of like working yeah. with the people. But yeah, it is a thing. People tend to do that. If they don't have a spray can, they do can do it with whatever. Like huh. there yeah, is a little bit of stuff, that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I could only assume eventually that like, well, there's no point in trying to paint over or remove it because people will just spray it again, right? Yeah. So yeah, that was that was a bit of a shock, but I mean you get used to it and, and then it's like, well, that's just the way it is in kind of public spaces, I guess. So um I was curious about attitudes towards recycling, composting, <laughs> things like this. When we got to our apartment, we had to ask, for starters, the owner, who we never met, of course, if you've done Airbnb, like you, you rarely if ever meet the actual owner. It's all communication through the app, and usually that's fine, but still, it's kind of a weird relationship. So we sent a message. We're like, well, what do you do for recycling? And she's like, oh, we don't. So we looked around, and they have these bins on in the city, at least, on well not every corner but in kind of central areas where you they might be labeled they might not so you know which goes where you're supposed to sort it but there's supposed to be like a glass one a plastic one i think a paper yeah. one and then a regular garbage one yeah the plastic oh, also has metal yeah. yeah they were so stuffed full like you couldn't we couldn't add anymore so we did our best to kind of accumulate that but i was wondering is there like a education or an emphasis or public messaging, I'd say, about recycling and things yeah, like that? Yeah, a lot, yeah. actually. But there's a big difference between all the investment in telling people how to recycle and like promoting recycling and whatever, and then actually having the bins where you can do that. Mm. And then actually having people to clear out the bins. Yeah. Which is another thing. Because like, for instance, here, we have the old, the old ones were like above ground brown with the different colors and you could fit things in they took those out to do the the other ones in the ground Hmm. so you don't see them so if like it's really full it's not like falling to the ground i see and it's better for pests and everything sure and and i was like yeah now they are going to get the old ones Mm -hmm. and put them in other places so we can have more places to recycle no they just disappeared Ah. so i don't know where they went but like, I hope someone got them, that they weren't just like thrown away. Right now, for us to recycle, we need to like accumulate, then go into town. Yeah. And next to one of the big buildings with a lot of houses, dump it there and then come back. I mean, we do that when you go out. We do have like enough room and we don't have that much waste because we compost. So there's no organic trash. In the cities, they're beginning to to have like programs for that, but it's still very sparse. It is complicated. You do see it like in some parks that there's already like the different sets for different things. You can see it in shopping centers. You can see it in some places, but it's still not like divulged enough or like widespread enough that you actually can go for a walk. Uh, no, I have something on my hand. I need to drop it in the recycling bin. Like in the Algarve, you do. You do have that. Yeah, but further up, they still need to work on that. Yeah. Do you notice then a lot of differences between regions? Oh, yeah. <laughs> culturally and mm-hmm. I guess bylaws and other things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like Portugal is a small country comparing to <laughs> a yeah. lot of other countries, but we do make it smaller. <laughs> Portuguese people are proud of making their regions so special that we can identify those that come out, like from from other places, even in Portugal. So there's the north, like above the Douro River is the north, between Douro and Tejo, which goes uh, to Lisbon. It's the center, mm-hmm. and from then on down, it's the south. Right. And there's the islands. Yeah, yeah. So those, those like, okay, they're apart. Yeah. And for, like, geographic reasons. The others are apart because, like, we tend to do things differently. So in the north, we're really proud of living in the place where Portugal started because this mm-hmm. used to be a county. Yeah. That actually went to the Douro River. And then Afonso Henrique decided, let me conquer more and make this a country. So he went downriver so actually when we are growing up we actually call anyone living below the Douro river moors because really? the portugal was conquered to the moors and that was 800 years ago or something uh, <laughs> more because like 1143 was mm. when we were recognized as a country 
So yeah, almost 900 yeah, years. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So <laughs> this is okay. So then, yeah. from a Canadian perspective, American, <laughs> I mean, history, quote unquote, generally mm-hmm. is like something 150, 200 years old, right? Mm-hmm. Beyond that, there's obviously traces, and of course, if you look at Indigenous populations, yeah. that's multiple generations of stories. Yeah. But I always wonder in Europe and lots of places too, but let's talk about Europe. What's your relationship to history? How do you relate to years, generations, these dates, you know? I've been learning a lot about history. I'm a history major and I always learn when I go to places. And I'm starting to get used to the feeling that when you read about something that happened in like 1497, right? The discoveries or with the first king in 1140 or something. That's pretty old. But even if it's 1497 or something, the Lisbon earthquake is a good example, 1755. Yeah. And it almost seems like yesterday yeah. in the Portuguese context, exactly. in a Canadian perspective, like we didn't even exist then. <laughs> yeah. But like for us, it's everything is in the history. Mm-hmm. Like when you're growing up and you're learning about the history, there is actually like still a bit of a tension between Portuguese and Spanish because mm-hmm. the Spaniards were trying to get this back. Yeah. And like to us, everything is always important because we are very territorial, mm-hmm. you can call it that. And actually there's a saying in Portuguese, those that do not know the date of 143, mm. when you became independent, you're not a good Portuguese person. <laughs> so like, there's that thing, like, be proud of your history. And our history goes way back. So like, we all know like more or less how we got here because like we had the discoveries and we were kings of at least half the world. Mm. Uh, not the best kings, but yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So like the emperors and whatever, like it's something that we do have ingrained in us mm. because we need to go back with saudade, mm-hmm. with like yes, with saudade. longing to that time because now like we're just another regular country mm. and we actually had like the dictatorship and it was really mm-hmm. bad and then the the wars with the colonies and whatever so like yeah we need to have go back to that to think yes portuguese people are so awesome <laughs> and have that notion that we actually created something important and long-lasting because it is a long-lasting country. Sure. Well, the influence is incredible. Yeah. It really is. And it's not just the language. Like, if I can try to remember, right? For one thing, I found a good book that I started to read. It's The First Global Village. Mm-hmm. Do you know about this book? Have you heard No. It? Okay. <laughs> it was on my list of things. And I found it, actually, at the Libreria in Porto, the famous, po- yeah, yeah. The famous bookstore, uh, How Portugal Changed the World. And even just the first couple chapters, the guy points out how, if I can remember all this, the for instance, the Portuguese introduced tea to England. Mm-hmm. Chai. Yeah. They introduced the notion of chili and curry to India. They introduced tempura to Japan. The Japanese word for thank you is arigato, which is derived from obrigado in Portuguese. That I did not know. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And all, you know, on and on from there. So... It's, uh, and this is all, what, 500, generally 500 years ago, some things yeah. maybe 200 years, but um, yeah, it's amazing, the influence. And for obviously a small country that's then subsequently kind of faded into a bit off to the side, let's say, as other countries started to, to dominate, right? But yeah, the but, influence but, is still there. But still, we're, we're eager enough to know that we have that influence, that we have that background. Like, for instance, other countries will have less Roman buildings and and ruins and hmm. aqueducts and whatever because what happened was when they got the territory they would knock everything down. Oh, yeah. We tried to keep it. Same thing with the Moors. So when the the Muslims came into the Iberian Peninsula in the eight hundreds and then when the Christian knights tried to get back the territory hmm. in the ten thousands. Actually, some, uh, especially with Afonso Henriques, with our first king, Mm. they actually became part or they remained being part of the country because they wanted to stay here. They didn't want to go back to what was becoming a bit more extremist, Islamic-wise and whatever. They had here a good connection. They had their training. They had their families. And so we actually included the way they, they would collect water, a, a lot of things that stayed that made us be able to then the Alentejo and leave there because it's really dry. Mm. And and we didn't do like 
destroy everything and try to build as well as you have. Like we tried to use the knowledge from before and we integrate it. Okay. And that actually helped us conquer Portugal way sooner than the Spanish, for instance, did when they actually finished conquering Spain. Yeah. To the Moors, like we were already in the discovery phase. Right. So, so, so it was. You had that stability then to then take the next step. Exactly, and because we were integrating everybody, like we have in Portuguese words from the Arabic, mm-hmm. algarve, alfajor, everything that starts with an al comes from there, and there's other words. We have words from English because we had the British come here help us keep our independence mm-hmm. from Spain in the 1300s yeah. and 1400s. So, like. They stayed, and we have a lot of words from there. We have words from the French because of the Spanish invasion. That got stopped in Porto, thank you, my town. <laughs> That's a whole other story. <laughs> exactly, whole other story. But again, northern people are... Feisty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And but see that that's that's why we always have like this is ingrained in us. Mm. Like we are proud of the part of the country we're born in. So if you go to Alentejo where everything is harder and things are slower and whatever, but people are really proud, they have their own ways of singing, their own ways of dressing, their own ways of doing things and even speaking. Like they use a lot of gerundif jundu, like the gerund. Okay, yeah. As walking and doing and whatever, like Brazilian people do with Brazilian Portuguese. So, like, there's different ways to speak in the north, as you can see. Mm. We speak really quick. Well, from my perspective, everybody does, but... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, it's quicker in the north. Okay. And actually, we have a lot of expressions that even people in the rest of the country do not understand we need to Mm. translate. So, that's one way that we actually know where you're from. But at the same time, we're all very proud of being Portuguese. And every time, like, there's something Portugal-wide, yeah. an event, a game, like, whee, soccer, Portuguese soccer. Like, everybody comes together. Okay. And that is good to see. Like, we might, like, know at each other and be really pesky with each other. If you're oh, from the north, you're from the south, ah! But at the same time, don't mess with someone from Portugal when there's someone else from Portugal there. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, it, we do have that sense of collective mm-hmm. although we are very proud of each part and belonging to each part is there a lot of mobility these days i say the there modern is. economy instead of people move around find jobs and yeah our villages kind of emptying out is there more of a transition to the urban life right now actually the, the thank you covid for that mm. it's happening the other way around Everybody was going to the coast, especially to Lisbon and Porto, Mm. like the two biggest cities. And the interior part of Portugal, especially the rural part of Portugal, was like actually becoming very deserted and old people only. And then came the fires in 2017 and whatever. People actually started moving away Mm -hmm. even, even more. But then with COVID, people understood that eh, maybe being in the city locked up in, in an apartment is not the best way to be. And a lot of people started actually, especially with digital nomadism mm. and other measures that each, each municipality has. Like, for instance, if the baby is born here, we will provide to you a thousand euros in, in cash for you to spend or in... in um, Credits? Or something? In credit, in tabs. Okay. So you can spend in the local stores, for instance, okay. to get things for the baby. So like, it's really cool to see they're trying to bring back people and the people are coming back. Nice. Especially okay. trying to like regenerate the soil and regenerate the land and regenerate the society because mm. a lot of uh, older people had problems with COVID and some people are trying to help with that too. Mm. So yeah, like... It did a lot of good changes. I just hope they keep them up. Yeah, I hope it'll last. Yeah. Well, it's funny, of course, from my perspective, from such a big country, it's like you could live here mm-hmm. where you guys are in Coimbra, which is a fairly big city. You can get lots of things there, and it's like an hour away or so, an hour yeah, and a half Yeah, well, usually we do like Vizio, which is half an hour away. And that's a pretty big city, I think, 80,000 yeah. some people. Yeah. And even Porto, if you go straight there on the expressway, it's like an hour and a half. Yeah. Yep. So... You know, you wouldn't necessarily work in these places, but you can go to the big centers to get supplies, to get things you need. Yeah, but like for Portuguese people, that's too far away. That's just it, yeah. For <laughs> us, there's nothing. We drive three hours every day. Yeah, yeah but like Portuguese people <laughs> have a different mentality. So yeah. unless you have to work on the road, like be, if you're like a commercial representative and you need to go like from this, there and whatever, like half an hour by car is already like, hmm, one hour stretching it, one hour and a half, I. 
like <laughs> especially for mothers if your child like grown-up child lives f farther away from you than like half an hour oh my child is so far away like yes <laughs> wow. portuguese mothers are hand mothers yeah yeah, yeah. for sure <laughs> It's a cultural thing. Hmm. I mean, but that is a good thing because then you get the support network, which in bigger countries that's sometimes true. it's harder to have. Yeah. And that's the thing, like for us, I mean, we do our best to get that support, but I should explain the bigger picture. Like we're here on this trip because we sold our house. We sold our house so we can move closer to Emily's family, my wife's family. And realistically, if they're within a 30, 40 minute drive from wherever we end up, you know, living, buying a house, that's really good because before there was four hours away. Ish. You know, okay. so like 30 minutes is nothing. We People do it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But it could sell perspective for sure. Yeah, it is. I want to touch on a couple more topics. We could keep going for ages. And <laughs> fascinating. I really, really enjoyed learning about Portugal, spending the time here. It was a country I always wanted to visit. And I told you this like a year ago when I was like, well, first of all, we knew we would have the time and the means to travel. Yeah. And where's the place we want to go? It had to be Portugal. Like, that was always the place I wanted to go and never had the chance, really. And so here we are. So I've really enjoyed, you know, when you take when you take a country that's kind of familiar, but then you start to really do the research with that intention of going. Yeah. And it just, the fog lifts and it's like you're playing a computer game and there's like a map that shows the the layout. And the yeah. more you advance, the more it, there's the more a light see. that kind of shines, yeah. you know, in a maze type thing. And that's what it feels like. So now I really understand I mean, at least from a geographical, it's somewhat superficial, but I do understand where things are yeah. and how it relates to each other. And now getting the more personal local experience has been wonderful here. But I do want to chat a couple quick things. So okay. it's the challenge as a tourist to try to understand the food. Um, <laughs> when you go to the grocery store, there's fish everywhere. You smell the fish as soon as you walk in the door, yeah. which is, I mean, it's fresh fish. So it's amazing. I don't know how to cook fish, really. But, like, the one thing that maybe stands out more than anything is the salted cod, bacalao. Mm -hmm. And from what I see, every store has it. It's yeah. kind of split open and laid flat, dried, covered, smothered in salt. Yeah. So how do you go from buying that in the store to actually eating it? What are the steps? How do you eat it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this comes from, like, way back when for storing fish. Because people couldn't afford a lot of meat and most of the meat would go with the sailors yeah, on their sure. trips and whatever. So we would have to get the fish. And the codfish can be salted and last for like the whole winter. It can last for months like that. It's enough salt that nothing, no, no fungi, no bacteria, nothing actually does anything there. So what happens is you need to cut it, put it in water. Just water, yeah. plain water, and change it often for like three or four days. Then you can cook it. Huh. If it's really thick, if it's really big cod, if it's really, really, really thick, you won't get the salt out mm. all the way. So be careful when you're seasoning because it's already you might salt. get a, yeah, yeah. it's already salty. Like if you cook if you cook it with potatoes, for instance, like you would cook the potatoes and it added 10, 15 minutes to the end. So it you get it really soft. If you already put salt in the potatoes, they're going to be salty. You need training mm -hmm. to figure out the amount if the cod is thick. If it's thin, all good. Like three or four days, it removes most of the salt. So when they're buying these cods that are like, they're big. like Yeah. Usually they do not recommend you getting less than the 40 centimeters mm -hmm. thing one. Because the other one is too small. They shouldn't have been fished okay. in the first place. Yeah. So the idea is to have like, there's codfish almost like a meter. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Long. They're big. Yeah. And because it goes from the fins to the tail, and they actually have like crazy dangerous machines that cut it. Wow. If you want, you can ask it for it cut. And they actually like just, it's like a vertical saw. Really intense. They have like those <laughs> chain of mail gloves and everything. Because this those is in things, the grocery store? Yeah. Oh, wow. Usually in the super, bigger supermarkets, yeah. they have that because it is an investment. Sure. Other people will have to do it in the house with their own knives. <laughs> <laughs> but still, like, it's something that you always know you can depend on because it, you don't need the fridge. You can freeze it later. If you remove all the salt, you can then dry it and then put it in the bag and then freeze it. And then you can use it. You can boil it. You can put it in the oven. You can, you can actually re eat it raw if you slice it and you then get garlic and olive oil. Okay. Everything needs to have olive oil <laughs> and olives <laughs> at some point. And um, you can do it in many ways. Every restaurant has 
many dishes of cod they provide, but they always have like the house, mm-hmm, I know the way that. of the house of doing it. Yeah. They can change one little thing, but it's already a totally different recipe from the restaurant next door. The times are changing. The traditional dishes always had either fish or meat. Yeah. But you can adjust to vegetarian. Mm-hmm. So there are ways, like for instance in Porto, you ate Francesinha, right? Yeah. yeah. Which is like <laughs> something typical from there. Well, let's explain what it is, yeah. Yeah, it's a really big sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> An intense sandwich on a, on a plate that has pork, sausages, and other dry meats. Yeah. And then you top it all off with an egg, lots yeah. of cheese, and spicy sauce. Gravy, yeah, some kind, yeah. Yeah, yeah that is always like alcoholic, mostly. <laughs> and again, million ways of doing it. And there's also the vegetarian way of doing it. But like everything would always have meat mm. or have a fish or even in Porto. We are also known as the tripeiros, has the gut gutters or something like that because the sailors needed meat for their trip because they would salt the meat and take oh, it. Oh, you mean the tripe? Uh... Yeah, tripas are mother's pork. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I kind of wanted to try that. I didn't. You should. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's tricky. It has okay. to be a good restaurant. Yeah. But yeah, when I was not a vegetarian, my aunt would do them. And yeah, it's a thing. They actually sent all the meat because it had been a rough year. They sent all the meat with the sailors. And mm. they said, we here in Porto will help the sailors. We only need to get the entrails mm. and we'll, we're good. So they made up a lot of dishes with entrails. And it sounds creepy, I know, it is creepy, but the sauces make the whole difference. Sure. And the way you cook it and the way you prepare it, the cuisine is not all cuisine, but it's the way you work to help the country, the way you work to help the community and whatever. So that is still ingrained in the... It's kind of a collective sense or feeling, yeah. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Almost all the food has some history behind Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. You've got a beautiful place here. It's been... Thank you. Such a breath of fresh air to be here. We like the city, but it's nice to get out of the city. And Yeah, once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much for sightseeing, but there's good landscape. Yeah, that's, that's a different kind of sightseeing. Today, yeah. actually, I should say, today we went to this amazing museum. This is the Museum of Bread. They said it was the world's largest museum dedicated to the, the history and the study of bread making. And part of what made it so interesting was it wasn't just like how to make bread, but they had a whole section on the political and religious history of bread. Yeah. I mean, bread is one of the oldest staples, of course, in like human civilization, right? And you think of how it's influenced all kinds of religious um, symbolism, you know, Christ and Muslims and all different religions and the influence on language and then political right up through the new state. They talked a lot about that, the 20th century here in Portugal. Yeah, the dictatorship. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it, it, that was fascinating to go beyond just, not just the bread, but the history and the influence of it too. Yeah. So we really enjoyed that. They had a whole section for the kids where they could make a little display that uh, out of bread dough, which was then baked with this glaze on it, which we yeah. could take home. And it was looking out over this valley, right? There was about 40 minutes or so from here. Beautiful view and... Yeah, it was just a great idyllic kind of corner of Portugal. So I'm really glad we had the chance to see that. Yeah, it's yeah. really cool. And like, if, even, again, the bread actually saved a lot of Jew people here because mm. at some point when they were like being persecuted, they would distinguish because they didn't eat pork. Right. Like most of people would have a pig. They would do all the, the stuffed like sausages. Yeah, the sausages and the chorizos and yeah. whatever. And they would have them hanging, drying in the in the kitchen. And if they didn't have them, that was a big giveaway. Mm. So people would change their names and do the same thing, but using bread, chicken, and vegetables. So looking looks like, like a far, sausage, yeah. Yeah, it looks like a sausage, but it's where the alheira came from. It also has garlic, hence the name alheira. Oh, Ayo. okay, yeah. Yeah, hmm. it's horseshoe shaped. Right. And it's also like something that you can cook the same way the others, but it's mostly bread with other stuffing. Like we have the vegetarian version here in the house that you will be trying tomorrow. Mm. Ah. (laughs) Listeners, you can drool, you wish. Okay, before we go, can you help me with how, what's the best way to approach the pronunciation of A-O with the accent like Saum or Mm -hmm. Joam? Kaum. Kaum. 
which is one of the like kind of staple Portuguese words. You know, you're see, you're reading, and you're speaking Portuguese, yeah. right? When you see this, so how yeah. would you say it? And how should I get my mind around the pronunciation? It's really nasal. Okay. And when in doubt, pinch your nose. So, ow, gão, João, sound, yeah, sound, yeah, yeah. It's easier when you do it since your birth, basically. But getting it right because it's a different kind of nasal than Spanish. Like even Spanish people don't do it very well, although they have the ñ. Mm-hmm. It's not used with the vowels as much, so it still needs some training and some distinction. Portuguese from Portugal, or what is called European Portuguese, is harder hmm. because the pronunciation is usually more closed, and we have like harder sounds like shish, lish, lish, yeah. we, like we do enunciate all the sounds. Okay. Sometimes we don't because it's too quick. Mm, yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of contractions in Portuguese. But if you actually go via the Brazilian Portuguese, it's easier. Huh. Because the way they open the vowels makes it easier on the nose sounds. Mm. You still have them, but it's more... I mean, it's it's easier way to tag it along. Mm. So if you have, I don't know, vou apanhar o avião, I'm going to catch the plane. Mm-hmm. Vou apanhar o avião. In European Portuguese, vou apanhar o avião. Okay. It would be different. It's Yeah, it's a little more enunciation then. Yeah, yeah and it's more sing-songy. So, uh, yeah. And we do understand Brazilian Portuguese. Mm-hmm. So if you need to learn Portuguese for traveling, please be advised to go with <laughs> the Brazilian the part because it's easier. Although I have been told, thank you, Angie, that uh, <laughs> Portuguese is really beautiful. It, it is. Mm-hmm. I like it. Thank God I was born into it. I don't have to learn it. <laughs> and it has like all the sounds that you find in German, French, and whatever, because we are a mix of all the languages, basically. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I struggle, too, with when you have an E, the letter E, mm-hmm. at the end of a word, like nort or norte. park. Norte. 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 Well, that's the thing. Yeah. It's not norte. It's like no. norte. Norte. Uh, parque. You need to say the E. Uh. Okay. Parque. See, we close it. If it was Brazilian, parque. Oh, Norte. Okay. No, Norte, Parque. They would do the E. It would be easier for you. Or set, the number seven, set. 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 But but you already have it, like, narrowed down very well. I guess, but I don't know if I'm doing it right. <laughs> you are, like, no worries. Yeah, because, like, sometimes you see the letter E with an accent, like in the town Nazare. Nazare. But that to inform the the reader that you have to do the A, so Nazare, it's not Nazare. Right, it's Nazare. Yeah, because uh, most of Portuguese words have the word accent on the second to last. Okay. So if the, it's not there, it needs huh. to have an accent somewhere else. So where the where it is is where you need to uh, uh, accentuate. So Nazare. Right. Or Jacare, which is alligator. Or Ate, until. Mm-hmm. And the other way around, some before, like for instance, Penultimo. It has the the one before last penultimo. Mm-hmm. It has also the accentuation, like on the U. On the U. Yeah, yeah. And the letter O, the vowel O, <laughs> is my dictionary say it's usually pronounced more of like an U. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. I thought so, but I wasn't sure if I was hearing it right. And at the end of the sentence, we always use it as an U, huh. as in U. But again, Brazilian people always O. It's okay. really rare that they actually close it as much as we do. We we have like e has a lot of uh, e u mm-hmm. e because we also have like the the roof sign a semicircumflex changes like <laughs> we change a lot of sounds we do a lot of sounds and sometimes we do the pronunciation differently from what it is spelled that also happens and some people do not know how to say words in Portuguese in their Portuguese so you're all good okay like even if you don't know how to pronunciate. It, like no worries they're Portuguese people that also don't mm. <laughs> so they must I suppose they must be used to hearing words pronounced different ways yeah whether it's from other Portuguese or other Brazilians or anyone else really. or someone not understanding especially in the north someone not understanding what you're saying because if we kick into gear in the north the pronunciation is different we do it more like the Spanish from Galicia we everything is a B yeah, Not, yeah. There's the V in the word, but we will do it as a B. So instead of vaca, which is cow, we would say baca. Okay. A vaca e o boi, instead of a vaca e o boi. Mm. But see the speed? 
Yeah. Like to say it properly, I need to slow down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah. So like we always try to get the words to stick to each other so we can send the say the sentence more, more quickly. Possible, yeah. yeah, as fast as possible. <laughs> so if it has an A, we will cut the A to put it in the in the beginning and we cut the A and do it like in one word. So yeah. I guess most languages do that, but I'll ask you from your perspective, do people do that in English? Try to like a lot of contractions and cut words or do you find there's more distinction with syllables consonants in that sense i think the americans do it almost as much as we do it in portuguese brazilian people not as much we do it more americans do it more british people not as much hmm. it's like the cause because you're removing the b it's like the ain't yeah, yeah, and whatever so we do the, those kinds of things okay. like the, we have the verb estar which is the state like i am mm -hmm. but as in a state yeah. but most most of the times we just say tar uh-huh okay like we drop the es yeah like eh, we drop a lot of stuff <laughs> <laughs> So actually, like, if you want to learn, you need to get Portuguese people to speak slowly, mm -hmm. enunciate, and say all the syllables if they can, mm. if they still know how. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if they feel like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it is fun. And most of the times it does sound a bit like Russian. That's if true. If we do it really quickly. That was literally our observation. And then yeah. we heard other people saying that too. So it wasn't just us. Like, yeah. First time I heard that was in the States because we were talking in the bus, my husband and I, when we went there for an externship. And someone was like, are they Russian? And I'm like, <laughs> ah, it's so different. And then I was listening to Russian and no, not that different. Mm -hmm. No. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad I got a little bit of language practice with you because yeah. that was on my list too. Cool. And, and to share it with everybody listening. So that's the whole point of this conversation is that we could chat a bit about Portugal. You can all enjoy Portugal and come and visit yes, or absolutely. even stay here. <laughs> yeah, you're wonderful hosts and it's amazing Thank to you. see you in person. And yeah, to share this conversation with everyone in the Puttyverse. So hello, everybody. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you. Obrigada. Obrigado. Thank you very much. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm going to be home in a couple of weeks and that should uh, pick up some more multi-pod episodes. So stay tuned to your Puttyverse inbox, you might get a message from me if inviting on this show. If you want to come on this show, we talk about anything and everything, of course, since for multipods. So feel free to reach out, of course, and uh, invite yourself on the show. You'll be welcome with open arms. And I'm sure we'll have some more episodes soon. But this has been really, really fun to do our second ever live episode and our first in Portugal. <laughs> <laughs> our first outside of Canada, actually, because Vanessa and I did an episode yeah. in our backyard, of course, that was in Canada. So yeah. It's been lots of fun. Thanks so for cool. having us. Thanks for having Bye. us over. <laughs> we'll talk to everybody Thank soon. You. Cheers. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hola. Hola. Hello. Hello. Good.